Coming up on This Week in Games, Amazon Game Studios abruptly releases a game. Take-Two claims nearly 100 new games to be released by 2025, and Magic Leap somehow raises a $350 million lifeline coming up This Week in Games. It's that time of the week for your video game industry news rundown. I'm your host, Eric McConnell, and this was a news-heavy week in the game industry. You know, some weeks there are a lot of business deals like fundraising and acquisitions, and that takes up most of the episode. This week was all news, so let's kick it off. Amazon Game Studios proves it can actually launch something as Crucible enters the somewhat crowded hero shooter landscape. So do my eyes deceive me, or has Amazon Game Studios actually produced a game? Since its formation in 2014... Well, it was likely even formed before then. Amazon Game Studios has yet to produce a single title outside of a failed public alpha, despite a large amounts of talent under its studios in Irvine, San Diego, and Seattle. That meme is no more, as Crucible has officially launched this week. Crucible is a hero shooter kind of MOBA game that's in the same vein of Battleborn, Paragon, Overwatch, Paladins, and Riot's recent uh, game Valorant. Overwatch has already taken care of Battleborn, Paragon, and Paladins. We'll see if Valorant or Crucible can dethrone, or at the very least, stick around next to Overwatch. Some worrying signs at the launch have appeared, though. Compared to Valorant's media blitz, Crucible has almost had no hype or build-up leading to the sudden launch this week. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Amazon Game Studios, you know. They have Lumberyard, which is their own flavor of CryEngine. Lumberyard hasn't really taken uh, roots in the game development world and as far as I know, no one outside of Amazon Game Studios uses it. Amazon Game Studios are likely burning over $100 million a quarter. I mean, well over $100 million, let's be honest, with no results until now. And what would become of the employees if Crucible and New World, which launches later this year, launched a little fanfare? Like, they probably have, God, let me just guess, like 500 people within Amazon Game Studios, maybe more. Um maybe even like 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, if you include all the services and all the tech and the game developers and the studios and managers and blah, blah, blah. You know, looking at analogous industries, Amazon Prime is slowly becoming a force in streaming in the film world. They're getting nominated for like Golden Globes and I think Fleabag like swept a lot of the Golden Globes this year. But does I mean, is this going to happen in the game industry? How long does the game industry have until Amazon takes it over? I don't know. Like, you know, I, I would have been scared five years ago, but now it's like, man, they're just stumbling over themselves. And, I, you know, this type of culture maybe just doesn't produce games. And I said this before because I actually worked at Google and saw it firsthand that, like, Google isn't set up to produce creative endeavors like video games or entertainment, like, within Google. And... Yeah, you got to think the same thing about Amazon, the same thing about Apple, same thing about Facebook. Like all those first party Oculus teams aren't producing hits. Most of Oculus' sales come from third party teams. So it's just another sign. I don't know. We'll have to see. Crucible's out there. Um, they will do a rundown in a year and see if it's still up and running. Next up, disappointed with Take-Two's predictable yearly offerings. Well, they've now announced an astounding 93 full titles to be released in the next five years. So GameIndustry.biz is reporting that during the Q4 investor call, Take-Two president Carl Slacktoff 
Slatoff, Slatoff, Carl Slatoff said the company was planning on releasing 93 new titles across internal studios and external partners in the next five years. Slatoff went on to further break down what these 93 titles were. 46 of them will be new IP, 47 will be existing properties, 72 are for console and PC, while 21 are for mobile, and 63 of them will be premium, and 26 of them will be free-to-play. Hmm... It looks like this isn't like an offhand comment. Like it really looks like Take Two does have 93 planned titles to release over the next five years, and that's astounding. Like, I mean, God. Like, I mean, let's think. Like, does has EA even released 93 titles in 10 years? Has has Take Two even released 93 titles in their existence? Like, 93 titles in five years is absolutely insane. Um, and it's even more funny because sadly they said 2021 will be the lightest year of the next five years. So 2021 will have almost no releases and then they're just going to massively dump games onto people. Take-Two currently operates the 2K label, publishes Rockstar Games, has an independent label called Private Division and has a social mobile label called Social Point. Yeah, it's one thing for a president to talk about the game, but to break the titles down further like he did makes me think this is a reality. A lot of big companies were contracting, and they were only offering their incremental updates to their biggest games, like in sports or shooters, you know, EA would do Battlefield, new versions of Battlefield, new versions of Madden, new versions of FIFA, but wasn't really investing in the games that they previously did, like Spore or something, you know. But now I'm hoping to see companies take more risk. Like, uh, new IP is the lifeblood of any studio and publisher five to ten years out. You have to take these risks. You have to burn money knowing that, you know, one in ten of these games is going to succeed and that one in ten will hopefully resonate with people to produce lots of sequels and more money. Just think if Ubisoft didn't greenlight that <laughs> one Assassin's Creed game many, many years ago, they'd almost have nothing releasing at this point, right? <laughs> so... I don't know, 93 games. I, It's a lot. All right, next up. The IGDA unveils new game industry standards and reporting an initiative to curb industry behavior. This is a rough one to unfold. The IGDA has decided to now take reports of harassment, abuse, or generally bad game industry behavior and provide a list of reports on a per-company's basis to IGDA members and anyone in the press. The IGDA will run a background check to confirm the person submitting the report works within the game industry and has interacted with the company they're submitting the report for, but necessarily doesn't have to work at the company. Then the IGDA will anonymize the report and store it in a database. The company in question will be contacted that a report has been given and the IGDA will provide them with whatever resources means to correct their behavior. Their response will also be reported by the IGDA. And this, again, is all available to anyone in, within the IGDA or the press to query this database. Okay, I think this is a really, really bad idea. You know, it basically gives outlets for people to make accusations without repercussions and those accusations to be stored and queried at any time. And it kind of reads like the IGDA will become a passive bully, forcing companies to play their game and correct whatever the error is in whatever way the IGDA thinks that they should correct this error. You know, so for example, um, <laughs> imagine the IGDA came to your company and says, we have an honest report that you abuse children. Here are the resources that you need to correct. 
we're going to record the uses of these resources and your response to our accusations forever. And anyone can query your company's name and the first thing they'll see in our database is that you abuse children. I get it, the game industry is super far from perfect, but I, I don't see any good come of this. Um, you know, any disgruntled employee can use this as a legitimized soundboard for even the most like obtuse accusation and it'll stick with the company, it'll stick in this database. There's no avenue to get it removed. There's no avenue to do an investigation and see if this is actually real. So you're basically allowing anonymized accusations, as long as a person works within the game industry and has some interaction with the company, you're allowing any accusation to be stick stored and queried in a database. And then you're taking upon yourself to then tell the company how they should correct their behavior. And then you're gonna record their response to you coming at them with all these accusations like no good comes of this there's no way a company is gonna like take this seriously if anything they're probably gonna get defensive and probably try to distance themselves from you and you know you could see a lot of companies running internal investigations to see who is anonymously reporting this stuff and doing potential like disciplinary action if they think they figured out who it is. You know, there's a lot of negative that can come of this, and I don't see it actually correcting. I don't see a situation where anonymized reports are actually correcting systemic behavior. And I don't know. It's just a mess. Like, I, I just try to think of the negative, how things can be abused, and you're creating a system that allows for a lot of abuse, although it's coming from an idea that, you know, there's stories every month about, terrible accusations against CEOs, people of power, and everything. And then some of those fizzle out, and some of those go to a courtroom, some of those get settled. But you you can't legitimize claims until they're like proven to be true. And that's why in the US, we have like, uh, innocent until proven guilty. Like, could you imagine if like, anytime anyone made an accusation, someone got thrown in jail, it's kind of like the same thing in my mind. All right, next up, the IGDA has also unveiled a number of guidelines, including what constitutes crunch and what game industry credit standards should be followed. One new guideline has stirred up a lot of talk, the event diversity standard. So the IGDA says, I don't know, to be a partner with the IGDA and to get signed off on their event, you have to have a number of things. One of them, a representative representation of minority groups that exceed their estimated presence within the game development community hosting the event by at least 25% of their presence. So what does this mean? It means if the IGDA estimates your game industry community has 25% women, then or 20% women, then 25% of the people who speak at the conference need to be women. So, you know, it needs to be 1.25 times whatever representation is. So minority groups are represented across gender expression, culture, ethnic identity, race, sexuality, and geographic location. The IGDA has also enforced an age standard um, for the age of the people speaking at the conference as well. So under 30 needs to be 10 to 30% of representation. 30 to 39 needs to be 30 to 50% of representation. 40 to 49 needs to be 10 to 30% of representation. And 50 plus needs to be 5 to 20% of representation. 
The measured minority group representation should be on panels, roundtables, or talks about subjects unrelated to their experiences as part of the minority group unless the conference itself is based around these subjects. So that means if you have a game design roundtable, all of this needs to be enforced with that panel on the roundtable, but the people represented it um, can't be there to talk about. So if you're from Africa and you're 20 years old, your position on the roundtable can't be about being African or about being 20 years old. So <laughs> it's pretty stringent. The IGDA identified special interest groups are allies, blacks in games, Jewish developers, game accessibility, LGBTQ+, and mental health. Um, all right, it's a lot to unfold. This is another good idea that, in my opinion, doesn't solve the intended problem. Um, diversity is extremely important. One of my favorite talks of recent GDC was, I believe it was GDC 2019, where a talk with someone from Africa shared their experiences growing up, and they said that even though they were from this like village in Africa, um, all the kids there knew Japanese anime because it was one of the few things that was aired on their public television. And everyone grew up playing American video games. I think it was like PlayStation One days, so like Crash Bandicoot and stuff. And it was like part of their culture growing up in that village. And then he also wanted to make games or for other people to come and see his village and their culture and make games from that to preserve his village's history and culture through games, which is like an everlasting medium. You know, but like their solution, breaking down humans into a large number of labels that and then saying that labels should represent 1.25 times their present doesn't make sense math wise. I mean, it it reads as if their goal is specifically to drive out white and Asian males from speaking at game industry events. I mean, is everyone going to high five if all the white and Asian males no longer get to speak at these events? That's what it reads like. And where does labeling stop? You know, we can take it further. What is a Jewish developer different from a mental health developer, different from an ally developer? You know, I grew up um, in a single wide trailer in the middle of nowhere, North Carolina. And maybe these events need more people who grew up poor and less people who grew up in middle class houses. Um, should I enforce that? We have more, we check the background and economic status of everyone who grew up and not let people speak after a certain point, if they're middle class or upper class upbringing, maybe I'm more athletic than probably like 95% of the game industry. I need more developers speaking who are in their peak physical shape. And we don't have enough representation at these events. You know, we have a lot of people who've let their physical health go. So we have mental health uh, diversity people. We should have physical health diversity people too. And you see, yeah, these are hyperbolic arguments. Um, that I'm using to make this sound like ridiculous, but the idea still stands. In my opinion, the world needs more equality of opportunities and not equality of outcomes. You know, sp speaking for myself, I go to these events to hear the most successful and impactful industry leaders speak and share their knowledge. Saying who can or cannot speak based on a number of able labels like age, culture, gender identity, sexual orientation is the opposite of really what an open mind creative industry should do. People aren't a math formula, and people aren't a collection of labels. We're all very complicated creatures who exist on broad spectrums that change every second of every day. You know, ideas aren't better or worse or more diverse or less diverse based on what labels people can throw on you or you can identify on yourself. Um, and this is a sticking point where, like, if this type of idea continues that 
the IGDA should, you know, enforce, you know, their ideas of what labels are and what diversity is. I w- wouldn't want to be a part of the IGDA in future. So that's my opinion. Um, I don't know. It's pretty rough. Like a lot of these like enforcement things. Is this really what the IGDA should be doing? I don't know. I don't know. All right. Back to news. Sirius Sam 4 won't be able to release on PlayStation or Xbox until 2021, thanks to Stadia exclusivity. So Kotaku is reporting that Sirius Sam 4's developer, Crow Team, and publisher Devolver Digital have signed a deal with Google Stadia platform that allows for a Steam release, but blocks a console release. Um, Using my crystal ball, not by by actual facts, but just by me making up stuff, uh, I think Sirius Sam either A, wasn't going to make more money than Google's offering for its exclusivity on the console, so they went with that offer. B, Crow Team wasn't able to port to consoles in time for a multi-platform launch, so decided to take the Google Stadia exclusivity money. Likely. I really hope you guys got paid. Like, if I'm going to choose between those two options, I hope Crow Team and uh, Devolver Digital, I hope you guys got paid by Google, and congrats if you did. All right, next up, Platinum Games shuts down rumors that Microsoft is acquiring them. So this was a bit of a sigh of relief. Look, I love Microsoft, but we need more quality studios to stay independent if they can. Speaking with Video Games Chronicle, studio head Atsushi Inaba and game director Hideki... Kamiya said if Microsoft had been talking to them about purchasing Platinum games, it was behind closed doors and they haven't heard it themselves. That being said, Platinum is one of the best companies Microsoft could purchase to plant a flag in Japan, so it makes sense. Next up, Tencent picks up two big hires. So the South China Morningstar Post reports that two big hires by the Chinese giant. First up, Scott Warner has been tapped to head up Tencent's new Timmy Studio in Los Angeles. Warner has tons of experience from Black Isle Studios to EA and Ubisoft. He is Timmy uh, Los Angeles will be the first North American Timmy Studio. Timmy is uh, the team behind Arena Valor and Call of Duty Mobile. Also, Kojima Productions founder Ken Ichiro Imazumi has also been poached by Tencent as a creative game director. But on a, currently on an unknown project, I don't know. They didn't even say where he's getting placed, what studio he's running. So we'll have to wait and see. Tencent's making moves in North American development. They don't seem to want to sit back and be silent investors in a lot of these companies anymore. They seem to actually want to take an active role in making games in North America. So, you know, we all have to watch our backs because Tencent doesn't miss when they shoot. So. Keep an eye out of that. Let's run over some small news bits. Respawn Entertainment is opening a new Vancouver studio as they celebrate their 10-year anniversary. Following the Travis Scott hologram performance, Fortnite screened the latest trailer for Christopher Nolan's new movie, Tenet. Fortnite is exploring in-game video streaming for full-length movies within the game. That's pretty crazy. Epic Digital Game Store updates its refund policy to be a self-service policy if the game was played under two hours and purchased within 14 days. And they've set up keyless purchasing from third-party sites, making these purchases more secure. Lastly, questionable game store and rumored money launderer G2A must pay Factorio $39,600, 10 times the amount of chargeback and illegitimate keys sold on G2A. All right, let's get to the business news. We really only have two stories here, so don't fret. Um, first up, Magic Leap. Magic Leap avoids more conditional layoffs. 
by raising a massive $350 million venture round. I swear this is some miracle. Magic Leap somehow raised an astonishing $350 million a month after laying off a report at 1,000 employees, and two months after Magic Leap was shopping the company around for acquisition to the tune of $10 billion, with names like Facebook and Johnson & Johnson showing little interest but getting thrown around here and there. The information is reporting that CEO Rodney Abowitz pulled back the additional layoffs that were conditional funding wasn't secured. Business Insider is reporting that it was a mix of new and existing investors, but no additional details were given. I haven't found any other outlets that have actual information on how or where the funding was achieved, where they got it from, how they got it from, who they got it from. Um, so we don't really know. This brings Magic Leap's total fundraise to $3 billion. That's It hurts my brain. Like It hurts my brain. Oh, uh, that's a lot of money for a company that, frankly, hasn't sold a single thing. <laughs> but, but I will say this anecdotally, I have heard that the real Magic Leap device, not the developer kit that they released publicly, is groundbreaking. Like apparently, the real Magic Leap is a device that it's only seen by invite only at their labs, and that whatever they're releasing publicly is just like developer kits and test kits and things like that. But they have a real device that is groundbreaking AR that unlike anything anyone's ever seen. People who back Magic Leap's technology point to the fact that Google, Qualcomm, Kleiner Perkins, and Andresine Horowitz were part of the over half billion dollar Series B. And they certainly aren't a team of dumb investors or people who get excited about mute technology. That being said, I guess we'll see. You know, Magic Leap has a runway cash, but needs to convince the rest of the world what they seem to be able to do behind closed doors and that's that it's more than an overpromised R&D lab. Uh, AR is awesome. Um, it has amazing uses for more than entertainment. I firmly believe we all have like Jedi Council meetings like in Episode 3 of Star Wars. In the future, we all just sit around hologram boardrooms or in your living room with like hologram people sitting around you having business meetings. That being said, they have a new device, the Magic Leap 2 in development now, but... I don't know how long does $350 million get you at Magic Leap. Like $270 billion got you, you know, like what, like eight years and tons of debt and developer kit. Like what does an extra $350 million get you? It doesn't seem like much. I, I think someone has to buy this company to save it. And it's got to be one of these companies that really believes in the technology that being said, it's a miracle that they got $350 million, and I'm glad more people weren't laid off during the global pandemic. So last story of the week, Amplifier Game Invest acquires Destiny Bit. So this is a small story. Um, Goodbye Kansas Game Invest rebranded itself in April of last year as Amplifier Game Invest, and now has acquired Italian indie studio Destiny Bit. Destiny Bit is known for Empires Apart and the upcoming Dice Legacy the acquisition amount is unknown, but it's part of Amplifier's plan to expand in other territories of Europe outside of Scandinavia, obviously being an Italian studio, they're starting with Southern Europe. So makes sense. All right, that's it for this week in games. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. Also, leave me a comment and let me know how I'm doing. You can email me at eric at thisweekingames.com if you have any comments or suggestions on future stories. Lastly, please check the show notes for any stories you heard in today's episode. All right, that's it for this week in games. I'll see you guys next week and we'll do it all over again. Take care. Bye.